The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The news now reads like a Russian spy novel. Greetings, this is Thursday, May 25th, 2017. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for supporting this show by using and bookmarking the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. There is an upside to a weekly look at the news over a daily one. Even a daily summary these days wouldn't be enough. As soon as a program is released, more news breaks. Looking at an entire week gives us context and paints a more clear picture of trends and the collective seriousness of all these revelations. The early reports on breaking news are often incomplete or conflicting, painting a muddled picture. And breaking news can often distract from a simultaneous event that may be equally important. So here's the long view of another long week. Make no mistake about it, Donald Trump is the President of the United States. And the Russia investigation, as it blazes forward with new revelations daily, almost hourly, Trump continues his overseas trip as the U.S. President. And while he's out of town, a few administration officials back at the White House unveiled his new budget. The pageantry of the trip, meeting with world leaders and the Pope, and the seriousness of his budget proposal is what presidents do. This three-ring circus, the trip, the budget, and Russia make it hard for a working person to focus on any one thing. If that wasn't the plan of the Trump administration, it's worked out that way. And in the midst of it all, another horrible terrorist bombing in Europe. But the dedicated people in our law enforcement, intelligence, and other government agencies, certain determined lawmakers in Washington, and journalists working overtime, are staying focused as one disturbing nugget after another appears in that Russia investigation. But to my point, Trump is the president, doing things presidents can do, including trips to the Middle East and beyond, to proposing cuts in the Medicaid he told his supporters he would not cut. Trump's budget proposal would never pass Congress, certainly not in its current form. It's too Republican, even for most Republicans, and the arithmetic's off by $2 billion, although the White House says it's just a draft that'll be fixed. But the proposal speaks volumes about this president's priorities. Trump's budget, as it's written, would hit hardest in the states that voted him into office. Voters he promised on Twitter he would not cut Medicaid or Medicare. The Medicaid cuts alone would total... $610 billion. Health insurance subsidies would be cut, putting insurance out of reach for many middle-income Americans. Under his proposal, there'd even be cuts in Social Security disability payments. The Trump plan is to make major cuts in health care, food stamps, and education. To those who rely on food stamps to supplement their meager incomes, Trump's budget secretary says, quote, we need you to go back to work. And he wants the disabled on Medicaid to prove they are, quote, truly disabled. Of the 10 states Trump carried in the November election, seven of them used the most food stamps of any state in the country. So the drastic cuts he's proposed cut right into Trump country. And those are just the social safety net programs where trillions of dollars are being cut. The Trump budget also includes the most cuts ever proposed by any president. It changes government, cutting 66 federal programs in all. He still wants to cut nearly a third of the EPA budget, even cuts at the Veterans Administration. And then there's education, facing $9 billion in cuts under the Trump plan. Even though only about three and a half cents of each of your tax dollars is spent on education, Trump wants to make major cuts in that. He's proposed cutting $11 billion from the federal education budget. That would cut 22 programs for public school students, K-12, through including after-school programs, the arts, phys ed, and foreign languages. It would also cut funding for the Special Olympics. And it would end work-study programs and cut the subsidies for college loans to low-income students. Then who could possibly like this budget proposal? Billionaires like Trump, the rich, who under his tax proposal would escape trillions of dollars in taxes while cutting trillions for the poor. Astonishingly, Trump's budget guy, Mick Mulvaney, also said this, We cannot measure compassion by the number of people we help. On Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats alike say Trump's budget is dead on arrival. It'll be up to Congress now to decide a real budget, but the one proposed by Trump speaks volumes about his priorities. It would also spend $54 billion more on defense, $1.5 billion for his border wall, and another billion for 
other forms of border security. Some of those dedicated career professionals in government tried to warn everyone about Russian interference in our election process early and often. They even tried to warn Trump in case he didn't know. This week, we learned that the CIA warned Russia to back off that interference once the CIA discovered and verified that interference. The man who was running the CIA when that intelligence was confirmed to be true was John Brennan. And he testified this week for the House Intelligence Committee, which is further investigating the interference and the Trump campaign's increasingly plausible connection to it. Tuesday, Brennan told congressional investigators that he warned the head of Russian intelligence that the meddling would backfire on Russia and severely damage the already tenuous relationship between Washington and Moscow. Brennan revealed this warning to Russia for the first time this week, telling lawmakers he told Russia's top spy to pass along that warning to Vladimir Putin. Although FSB head Alexander Bortnikov twice in that conversation denied there was any Russian meddling in the 2016 American presidential campaign, he agreed to pass along Brennan's warning. That was shortly after Trump had publicly invited Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails. Former CIA Director Brennan says he also briefed Trump on what he'd found, Trump later comparing the CIA to the Nazi secret police. Brennan also warned top members of Congress in classified meetings in which he says he stressed the importance of this Russian cyber attack on the campaign, from hacking to fake news on social media. Brennan also revealed on Tuesday it was he who prompted the FBI's counterintelligence investigation. As the head of the CIA, Brennan knew that because U.S. persons were involved, it had become a matter inappropriate for our foreign spies, but just right for the domestic-focused FBI. There is no love lost between Trump and Brennan. That Nazi remark stuck in Brennan's craw. And it didn't help that Trump stood in front of the CIA wall that honors those who died serving their country and talked about his big election win. But Brennan told investigating lawmakers it's entirely possible Trump's people didn't know, at least at first, that they were being used by Russia. That, said Brennan, is how Russia rolls. They befriend you and having you helping them before you realize you are helping them. But why then would Mike Flynn conceal his activities if he hadn't ultimately become aware he was caught up in something bigger? That, says former CIA man Mike Brennan, he will answer in closed session, since that answer right now is classified. Monday evening, we'd learned that Trump had asked his two top intelligence officials, officials he'd selected, to help him push back against the Russia talk. That happened right after former FBI Director James Comey had told Congress he was investigating possible ties between Trump and Russia. Trump wanted pushback, so he again breached protocol and reached out to the new National Intelligence Director, Dan Coats, and to new National Security Agency Director, Mike Rogers. The Washington Post says Trump urged Coates and Rogers to publicly deny there was any evidence of collusion. Even they, even Trump's own people, refused that request. Yet another instance of Trump personally trying to impact the ongoing investigations, plural, into his campaign. There is the FBI's counterintelligence investigation, and there is now also a criminal investigation. And there's mounting evidence Trump and his staff have tried to shift or block the investigations at nearly every turn. Here are half a dozen prime examples. Most recently, asking the Office of Government Ethics to withdraw its request for relevant documents, refusing to turn over records on Mike Flynn to the Congressional Investigative Committees, asking House and Senate investigative leaders to issue statements to push back against the Russia reports, asking FBI Director James Comey to let it go after failing to get Comey to take a loyalty oath, and after asking Comey if the Russia investigation extended to Trump calling the investigation a witch hunt and news about it fake news and discrediting all 17 of America's intelligence agencies, firing nearly 50 federal prosecutors, including the lead prosecutor in New York, where Trump businesses are headquartered, firing Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates after she warned the White House about Mike Flynn's Russia connections, and firing FBI Director James Comey as he was stepping up his investigation of the Trump campaign's numerous ties to Russia. We've learned a bit more about Comey and how he handled Trump. Comey Associates told the Washington Post that Comey had carefully prepared for his encounters with Trump, half expecting Trump would stumble across legal or ethical boundaries. Comey, they say, was uncomfortable about even meeting with Trump because of the investigation. These associates say Comey talked with them about how to handle possible questions from Trump and what those questions might be. 
It's what's known in prosecution as a murder board in which several investigators gang up and ask tough questions, giving the answerer a chance to rehearse his answers. Associates say Comey wanted to accomplish two things, to not compromise the independence of the investigation and to not anger Trump. Comey also didn't want to give Trump any ammunition that could be used against him, Comey, later. And they say that right after the meeting, Comey started writing notes about his meeting with Trump as soon as he got into his car to make sure he got it down correctly. The day after the meeting in which Trump asked Comey to back off the Flynn investigation, White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus called Comey, asking him to say something publicly to counteract the reports that Trump's people had been in touch with Russian officials throughout the campaign. Comey even tried to keep his distance literally. At a White House ceremony before his firing, Comey, who had to be there to represent the FBI, stood on the opposite side of the room and, despite his height, tried to blend in. Trump called him out anyway, forcing Comey to cross the room for a handshake he didn't want to give or be photographed giving. In the video, Trump appears to try to hug Comey, but Comey resists, turning away as Trump moves in. We've seen this before. It was, of course, Richard Nixon who tried to get the CIA to shut down the FBI's investigation of Watergate. And although it was calling Comey crazy and a nut job that grabbed the headlines, there was even bigger news in the other thing Trump told the Russians visiting the Oval Office this month. In addition to spilling state secrets there two weeks ago, Trump told Russian officials that firing the head of the FBI was a great relief. Quoting from the White House transcript of that meeting, I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. But the pressure isn't off. The investigations continue, and the nation's legacy newspapers are not letting it go. The Washington Post, which also played a vital role during Watergate, revealed on Friday that a White House official, someone close to Trump, is a significant person of interest in the Trump-Russia investigation. That investigation now reaches into the highest levels of our government. The Post sources have not revealed the name of that White House official close to Trump. The general assumption has been it's Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and the person Trump has named to execute much of his agenda. A writer from New York Magazine says it's Jared and that he has that confirmed by four sources. Jared was reportedly instrumental in the firing of James Comey. The Senate Intelligence Committee now wants to hear from him, and he has volunteered to testify. That testimony has not yet been scheduled. It's a process, and it moves slowly. The New York Times, meanwhile, says a key Trump campaign worker had ties to Russia, working for a Russia media company that supported Vladimir Putin in Russia. Michael Caputo has now been asked to testify for the House Intelligence Committee and to bring his documents with him. It isn't clear if he'll cooperate since he is now accusing the committee of trying to smear his name. Those were among the week's revelations, one after another, and it all started right after my last newscast when Reuters reported there were at least 18 phone calls and emails between Trump campaign advisors and Russian officials just in the final seven months of the 2016 presidential campaign. We had known of six. This revelation tripled that number of contacts. Most of the calls were between Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, and the Russian ambassador and spy recruiter, Sergei Kislyak, who was one of the Russian officials in the Oval Office just two weeks ago. But other Trump campaign officials had contacts as well. That was from Reuters on Thursday. And then on Friday, CNN reported that U.S. intelligence had picked up conversations in which Russian officials bragged about the friend they'd made in General Flynn and how they could use him to influence Trump and most of Trump's people. The Russians also discussed early Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and how he might be helpful. Flynn and Kislyak met four years ago, and over those years, Flynn and his consulting firm have received millions of dollars from the Russians and from Russian interests. Last night, we learned that Attorney General Jeff Sessions, like Flynn, failed to disclose his Russian contacts when he applied for security clearance to be Attorney General. That's a big story. Sessions met twice last year with Sergei Kislyak and didn't report them as required by law for a security clearance. Sessions also failed to disclose those contacts in his Senate confirmation hearings earlier this year. Jared Kushner also failed to disclose his Russian contacts when he applied for his security clearance. Together, Sessions, Kushner, and Flynn leave evidence of concealment. Or it's a case of contagious carelessness. 
of Mike Flynn himself. We've learned he is refusing a Senate subpoena to turn over his records and that he's refusing to testify. He has invoked his Fifth Amendment right not to testify against himself, which is, legally speaking, not the same as admitting guilt. But he's also invoked the Fifth for his financial records, and there's some question whether papers have Fifth Amendment rights. After his firing, Flynn's lawyer said Flynn had plenty to say to investigators. If they would promise him immunity from prosecution, that didn't happen. Congressional investigators refused Flynn's request for immunity and sent out that subpoena that he is now refusing to obey. They're now sending out other subpoenas, including subpoenas for his two consulting businesses, and businesses definitely don't have Fifth Amendment rights. And the committee said it would consider later filing contempt of Congress charges against Flynn if he continues to refuse to provide documents. It may be a good thing Flynn won't get immunity since there's increasing evidence he committed federal crimes and lied about them. Failing to register as a foreign agent as Flynn did while working for Turkey and Russia is a crime. And now it's clear that Flynn, a U.S. Army general, lied on a security clearance application about who had paid him for his work in Turkey and Russia. Again, despite reports about Flynn before Inauguration Day, despite the warnings from others, Trump chose Flynn to be his national security advisor anyway. Trump then kept Flynn on nearly three weeks after Deputy AG Sally Yates warned Trump that Flynn had become a blackmail target for the Russians who knew Flynn had been lying. It certainly is a lot of smoke, making it harder to believe there isn't also a fire. There's been criticism, especially by Trump, of the anonymous sources that help us peel back the layers of the Russia story. But there are too many to ignore, the Washington Post citing more than two dozen sources for one of its recent stories. And as was the case with James Comey, more of these sources are stepping into the daylight, revealing their faces and their names along with what they know. It would seem clear where this is headed, but nothing much seems clear or certain these days, especially with a president whose base isn't hearing any of this. And even if it's headed in the direction it appears to be, it's even less clear how long it'll take to get there. In the meantime, we've also learned that White House lawyers have started researching impeachment just in case, and Trump himself continues to lawyer up. Initially, he hired a law firm to write a letter to Senate investigators declaring he has no financial ties to Russia, quote, with a few exceptions. That firm, Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchius, was last year named Russia Law Firm of the Year. Trump has now hired the man who represented him unsuccessfully in fighting the Trump University class action suit and in suing a New York Times reporter who'd written that Trump was not a billionaire, instead being worth only a quarter billion. That attorney, Mark Kasowitz, now also represents a Russian-controlled bank whose name may come up in the Trump-Russia investigation. The Washington Post now reports that Trump and his advisors are, quote, moving rapidly to put together a team of lawyers from various firms, lawyers who know about impeachment, just in case. We now know when to expect the departure of the head of one of the congressional committees investigating Russia and Trump. Jason Chaffetz of Utah announced last month he'd be leaving that post and Congress altogether after campaigning just five months ago for his current two-year term. As head of the House Oversight Committee, Chaffetz doggedly pursued investigations of Hillary Clinton, Planned Parenthood, and the IRS. But now that the investigative focus is on Trump and Russia, Chaffetz seems to have lost his appetite for oversight. He now says he'll be leaving Capitol Hill at the end of next month. There'll be a special election back in Utah to replace him. Chaffetz said he wanted to spend more time at home with his family, but there are rumors he's considering a job with Fox News or running for governor in his solidly red state. In the meantime, Chaffetz has called former FBI Director James Comey to testify before his oversight committee this week. A resistance update, Trump's trip, no modern families for Texas, and a comment from Bob Seska after this. I cannot count the number of mornings I woke up on a pillow that was so sweaty I had to throw it in the dryer before making the bed or I'd spend a restless night flipping and reshaping to try to get cool and dry. Now I wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow because now I sleep on a hello pillow. The hello pillow stays cool while giving my head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. A lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses but still haven't figured out the right pillow. 
Traditional fiber fills are hot and humid, collapse under your weight, and don't give you the full night's support you need for good posture and good sleep, and you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but can't be molded into the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot, and it gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Although a microbead pillow does breathe, it too gives off gases, and once those beads collapse, which they will, they're actually harmful to the environment. And as eco-friendly as a bamboo pillow sounds, it isn't after all that processing, and it isn't antimicrobial, as its makers have often claimed. Hello pillows are filled with natural buckwheat holes that are eco-friendly, don't give off gases, and don't collapse. The buckwheat is grown and milled by American farmers before the holes go into Hello's pre-shrunken, certified, organic, unbleached cotton twill casing right here in the U.S. Hello pillows breathe and stay cool and, most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the Hello pillow by removing or adding more holes through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I'm so happy with mine, I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement and proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hello pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get this deal by going to hellopillow.com slash buzz. That's hellopillow.com slash buzz. H-U-L-L-O pillow. Say hello to a healthy and restful night's sleep and wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this free newscast at hellopillow.com slash buzz. Keep it simple for Trump. That was the advice from American consulting firms working for the countries Trump would visit as he swung through the Middle East, headed ultimately for the NATO and economic summits. The New York Times reports that the countries were advised to beware of Trump's, quote, 30-second attention span. They were advised not to assume that he knows history or the nature of Middle Eastern conflicts. They were advised to compliment Trump on his electoral college victory and to tell him that he's an improvement over Obama. The dignitaries at NATO and the G7 were advised to keep their presentation short, to use visual aids, and instead of making requests, offer him a deal that he can call a victory. Foreign Policy magazine reported this, quoting a source as saying, it's like they're preparing to deal with a child. While in Israel, Trump swore he never mentioned Israel when he spilled classified intelligence information to the Russian officials he'd invited into the Oval Office. But then he didn't have to. The Russians have the means to figure out the source was Israel just as easily as the reporters who uncovered Trump's security breach. A Politico poll taken after we'd learned of Trump's indiscretion shows most of us think he shouldn't be trusted to protect state secrets. 57% of us have little or no confidence in Trump's ability to handle this country's most sensitive secrets, according to that poll. After the Manchester bombing this week, the Trump administration released the name of the alleged bomber, even while British authorities were trying to keep it under wraps as they continued their investigation. Then, photographs shared with U.S. intelligence were leaked to the New York Times, upsetting the families of the victims and British investigators who were trying not to tip off the rest of that terror network. Britain's Home Secretary says she's irritated by the leak, and British officials have now stopped sharing their intelligence with the U.S. Prime Minister Theresa May saying she intends to speak with Trump about this. Another ally now less trusting of the U.S. or Trump's ability to keep a secret secret. And now we've learned that Trump also spilled the location of two U.S. nuclear submarines to brutal Philippines dictator Rodrigo Duterte. Fake news is still with us, and the attacks on real media continue. If you can keep up with the players, it's worth the trip. To lead us on that journey, here's Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Let's review. It's perhaps the biggest political scandal in American history, a hostile foreign government controlled by a former KGB strongman and his inner circle kleptocrats weaponized the use of social media, disinformation, and malicious hacking to interfere with our presidential election. And suspicion is mounting that the winning candidate, along with many of his closest advisors, may have criminally collaborated with this foreign government in that endeavor. 
Likewise, this winning candidate apparently has deep yet undisclosed financial ties, including possible money laundering scams, with this foreign government and its various wealthy plutocrats. This is just about as real as it gets. 17 American intelligence agencies and nearly every reputable domestic and overseas news outlet have independently verified the broad strokes of the Trump-Russia story, as well as the grittier details, by way of countless sources and what must be hundreds of articles, backed with accompanying documentation when available. Knowing what we know, it's difficult to accept a series of takes in which anyone who engages in Trump-Russia speculation is scolded for engaging in conspiracy theories and quote-unquote fake news. One of the most recent examples of this kind of scolding appears in an article for Vox by Zach Beauchamp, in which he called out a team of independent investigators, specifically a former conservative member of the British Parliament named Louise Mensch, along with former National Security Agency analyst John Schindler, also a conservative, and others. A previous article by Aaron Maté for The Intercept similarly chastised Rachel Maddow's award-worthy coverage of the story. Both Beauchamp and Maté have done considerable research, yet they nevertheless play games with what constitutes conspiracies and fake news while failing to debunk any of the speculation or reporting they criticize. Before we continue, I'd like to be perfectly clear about my personal position on what we're hearing from Team Mensch. Simply put, I'm taking everything with a grain of salt, as should we all, until more sources and official accounts emerge. Until then, it's better to regard the Mensch reports as highly speculative, as hints and clues that will perhaps serve as potential springboards to future traditional journalism with better sources. In the case of a site called the Palmer Report, however, also mentioned by Beauchamp, it's worth noting that Bill Palmer, its proprietor, formerly ran the pro-Hillary Clinton site Daily News Bin, which routinely published unsourced, shoddy posts about the election, making his current reporting automatically suspect. You probably shouldn't bother with that one. There are small-c conspiracy theories and big-c conspiracy theories. Both Maté and Beauchamp go to great lengths to characterize speculation about the Trump-Russia connection, which I would describe as small-c conspiracy theories, as being on a similar level as Alex Jones's loony big-c conspiracy mongering. Maté, to his credit, never mentions the specter of fake news to describe some of the Trump-Russia speculation, but is certainly implied. Beauchamp, on the other hand, goes all in, describing the Trump-Russia social media reports as conspiracy theories and, yes, fake news, while also claiming that Democrats are, quote-unquote, falling for this stuff. Nevertheless, this is a long way from the fake news that was unearthed during the election, with fake news being the obviously bogus articles that were literally fabricated out of thin air purely for social media traffic. Nor is Trump-Russia speculation similar to Alex Jones's InfoWars universe, jam-packed with theories that are almost supernaturally weird. You might have heard some of Jones's greatest paranoid hits. Gayness-inducing juice boxes, chemtrails, shape-shifting lizard people, weather weapons, and of course the various false flag theories surrounding tragic events like the Sandy Hook school shooting, the Boston Marathon bombing, and so forth. Any rational human being will tell you there's a chasmic difference between suggesting that the Sandy Hook tragedy was a hoax involving crisis actors and proposing what nearly every news outlet shy of Fox News is reporting, that Russia quite likely, in some conjunction with the Trump campaign, tried to manipulate the 2016 election using disinformation and malicious hacking. The latter has been all but adjudicated, while the former, the Jones material, is unproven, unsourced gibberish. Most of what we hear from the Louise Mensch crowd has to do with process and legal maneuvering, along with speculation about the roster of Trump associates who might have connections to Russia that may or may not be dubious in nature. Oh yeah, some of the Team Mensch rumors have turned out to be accurate, by the way. Beyond Team Mensch, Maddow's nightly coverage has either been verified or will likely soon be so, either by peer-duplicated reporting or the investigations themselves. By the way, remember Maddow's loony-sounding stories about Trump's connections to the Russian fertilizer king? Trump's lawyers have verified that one in writing. Some of the reports from Team Mensch have not been traditional journalism, but they could well trigger additional reporting by traditional journalists, thereby revealing a side of a story we wouldn't have known about otherwise. We should also be prepared to learn that some of Team Mensch's reporting will fall apart. Hell, at some point, the Washington Post might get one or two stories wrong as well. Woodward and Bernstein, for their part, had at least one major clinker in the mix. So stay tuned. Of course, we should take some of the wilder reports about Trump and Russia for what they are, namely rumors and speculation. Almost nothing is significantly outside the realm of possibility, though, given the unprecedented context of this scandal. 
even if some of these ideas land outside the mainstream, the entire world has been dragged far beyond the mainstream into a worsening crisis by a clownish sexual predator and reality show celebrity turned would-be autocrat who was graded on an extreme curve in the face of daily scandals and a bottomless rap sheet of apparent links to foreign cash and overseas despots. Why shouldn't we entertain various theories about how and why he was elevated to the presidency? Bear in mind, too, that the most well-sourced Trump-Russia article published this week in the New York Times might seem particularly loony to someone in the world before November 8th, 2016. Our new normal is deeply weird. When a foreign power tries to hijack our election and may well have succeeded, isn't it incumbent upon us to question what this foreign power and its collaborators are up to? The scope of this treasonous act demands vigilance. Trump's election and the very existence of the Trump-Russia story has raised alarming and all-too-plausible possibilities. Now it's a matter of determining what might happen next, and concurrently how much damage will be caused. Dampening the online discussion about the scandal by inaccurately lumping in Trump-Russia speculation with deranged right-wing science fiction conspiracies and fake news only allows the perpetrators increased latitude to wiggle out of their criminal activities. Don't let them. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com, and I am proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. There is, of course, pushback against Trump, and it's already paying off in votes and dollars. Democrats have just managed to flip two state house seats in New Hampshire and New York, and they did it in districts that went for Trump in a big way in November. In New Hampshire, it was the flipping of a district that's been a long-time Republican stronghold. In fact, Democrats say they've never won in that district before. A district in New York flipped just six months after handing Trump a 60-37 to 37 victory there. There's an unexpectedly close race today in Montana for that state's only congressional seat. It's a special election to replace Ryan Zinke, who's now Trump's interior secretary. But last night, the slight favorite in that race was charged with assault after he physically attacked a reporter who was trying to ask him a question about health care. That reporter, Ben Jacobs, is well known to other reporters and works for The Guardian newspaper. Another reporter on the scene from Fox says she saw the candidate grab the reporter by the throat and throw him to the ground. The reporter's glasses were broken and an ambulance took him to a hospital to get checked out. Three Montana newspapers have now reversed their endorsements of Republican Greg Gianforte, but many of the ballots in that state's special election today have already been cast. Gianforte later issued a statement putting the blame for the scuffle on the reporter, adding, It's unfortunate this aggressive behavior from a liberal journalist created this scene. In the Trump era, reporters have so far been assaulted, arrested, shut out, and called fake. Hashtag free press. The country's next chance at restoring our usual checks and balances is a year away, but Democrats are already filling their piggy banks. Congressional Democrats say they have raised $20 million in less than six months, more than they raised in all of 2015. The average donation has been 18 bucks. The money will be used to help Democrats win seats in the House, and that $20 million towers over the $2 million raised so far this year by Republicans. That may be what prompted Vice President Mike Pence to start a new political action committee tasked with raising money for Republicans running for re-election or election in next year's midterms. When a person launches a leadership pack, it's usually a sign they intend to run for higher office. We finally have some numbers on the bill that Republicans passed in the House last month to repeal and replace Obamacare, most of them without reading it first. The House plan would throw 14 million people off health insurance next year and 23 million over 10 years. Premiums would go up 20% next year, supposedly falling after that once states adopt plans with less coverage. Premiums for people with pre-existing conditions would skyrocket. Premiums for older Americans would double, perhaps quadruple. Out-of-pocket expenses would go up for maternity, mental health, and more. This nonpartisan report comes as a warning to the Senate as it tries to draw up its own repeal and replace bill. Although it was a suicide bomber who took 22 lives outside the Ariana Grande concert, police now believe he was part of a terror network. They continue their search for the man who made the bomb, hampered by the American leak of the suicide bomber's name. 
and that he had links to ISIS. ISIS now has taken responsibility for the bombing. Britain's Home Secretary says it was more sophisticated than some of the attacks we've seen before. In addition to the nearly two dozen killed, more than five dozen were injured, some still in critical condition, some maimed for life. Many of the victims were children, many in their early teens. At least eight people have been taken into custody in Manchester, including the suicide bomber's younger brother and other family members have been arrested in Libya. Britain's terror alert has been raised to critical as British military troops now guard venues of all sorts around the country, freeing more local police officers and home security to investigate. It is Britain's worst terror attack in 10 years. Ariana Grande has canceled her London shows entirely and suspended her world tour, returning to her native Florida after expressing shock and sadness about what happened to the young people leaving her show. Ariana's mother was among those offering aid and comfort to the survivors and the injured that night. And a Muslim cab driver in Manchester stayed up all night, reuniting children and their families and refusing to be paid for it. When in Rome, the president met the pontiff. In the press pool photo, Trump is the only one smiling. Pope Francis is clearly somber, so is First Lady Melania, while Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner seem expressionless. The Pope did smile when the two of them exchanged token gifts. The Vatican visit lasted about two hours. For a half hour, the Pope had Trump into his office for a private chat. We don't know and won't ever really know the full conversation, but Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has confirmed they did talk about climate change and that Francis urged Trump to scrap his plan to wiggle out of the Paris Climate Accord that the U.S. has signed with hundreds of other countries. We can only guess whether that border wall dust-up came up. During the campaign last year, the Pope said a person who thinks only about building walls and not bridges is not Christian. Trump responded back then, not by taking issue with the Pope's remark, but by attacking the Pope himself, calling Francis disgraceful and a pawn for the Mexican government. So we won't likely hear about the rest of their conversation. But thank you, said Trump as he left, adding, I won't forget what you said. Meanwhile, Trump's mass deportation of undocumented residents is well underway. Since his swearing-in, immigration has arrested well over 41,000 people. That's up nearly 38% over last year at this point. Immigration officials say they're focusing on immigrants they believe are a threat to public safety, but they admit they're also deporting non-threatening undocumented people in the process. In fact, three out of four of those being deported do have serious criminal records, but the number of recordless immigrants deported is up from 4,000 last year to 11,000 this year. The result? Immigrants who reported crimes to police in the past are afraid to do so now for fear they will also be deported. Many law enforcement officials say this new no-exceptions deportation policy is making their jobs harder. And some of the people being held for deportation are dying in the custody of immigration officials. In Georgia, two men died in two days last week. There have been eight such deaths in federal detention facilities around the country since the time of the election. Of the two men to die last week, one died from heart failure while he was being held for arriving in the U.S. without papers. The other was found in his isolation cell with a bedsheet around his neck. It turns out there's more than one Carolina trying to minimize the influence of black voters. South Carolina, you'll recall, was called out by a federal court for writing a voter ID law with the specific intent of keeping blacks and others from voting. Now, North Carolina has been called out by the U.S. Supreme Court for packing two congressional districts with black voters to minimize their influence on election results. The court has struck down the Republican redistricting of that state as being intended racial discrimination. Rather than admitting to racial discrimination, North Carolina Republicans have been claiming they redrew the districts to discriminate against Democratic voters, which isn't illegal even if it is unethical, or as one justice put it, unsavory. Texans enjoy that modern family TV show as much as the rest of the country, but Cam and Mitch wouldn't likely be able to adopt kids in their state. The Republican-held Texas legislature has passed a bill that gives so-called religious liberty protections to the people who decide who gets to adopt and who doesn't. In other words, if the type of person who, say, wouldn't bake a wedding cake for a gay couple would now also have the right to allow them or not 
to adopt a child. The bill passed the Texas Senate with a two-thirds majority. The vote in the Texas House was 109 to 34. The new law would allow state employees in the child welfare system to deny adoption due to their own so-called religious beliefs. The ACLU calls it legalized discrimination targeting the entire LGBT community at taxpayers' expense. The new law would also make it possible to deny parenthood to a woman who isn't married or to a couple that has no religious affiliation or to a couple that's, say, Muslim. Expect lawsuits over this. Texas lawmakers have also passed another bathroom bill requiring people to choose a restroom based on their gender at birth, not on their gender identities. The cannibals listened carefully to everything the missionary had to say, and then they ate him. That adapted quote from Mark Twain applies to net neutrality. The FCC has heard what Americans have to say about net neutrality, but it's going ahead anyway with its plans to end it. Net neutrality treated the Internet the way the law treats electricity and landlines as a public utility available equally to everyone at the same rates. Gutting net neutrality rules, as the Trump FCC is intent on doing, gives preferential treatment to customers with the most money to spend, big corporations, at the expense of everyone else. But the fight isn't over yet. We have just entered the official public comment phase of the process, which means there is still time to speak up about the change the Trump FCC is planning. The commission already has plenty of comments to examine, including an open letter from more than 170 organizations that want to keep net neutrality. The easiest way to comment is to go to gofccyourself.com and click on the small blue word express in the lower right part of the page. The builders of the Dakota Access Pipeline may be forging ahead with construction, but they're making no progress at revenge. The company that owns the pipeline had sued the Native American tribe known as the Standing Rock Sioux over a week's worth of demonstrations against the pipeline. The company says those demonstrations interfered with its work and cost the company over $75,000 in lost time. But a judge has thrown out the company's lawsuit, saying it cannot sue an entire group based on the actions of a few individuals acting independently. Lawsuits by the Standing Rock tribe against the company and the pipeline continue. Money is the root of all bacteria. The Cosby trial, the best hamburgers, and more in the third and final segment, up next. When I was a toddler, I'd follow closely behind my father, and he didn't always know it. One day as we passed through a doorway, he'd closed the door behind him, accidentally trapping me between the main door and the storm door, a very narrow space. He found me quietly waiting there as soon as he'd noticed I wasn't behind him anymore. He loves telling that story, and others, and we bond with laughter. It's the little things, isn't it? So what thoughtful little thing can we do for our dads on Father's Day this year? Something personal and practical. A nice shave set from Harry's might be the answer. It's the quality I've been telling you about all along. The balanced handle, a trio of Harry's famous five-blade precision cartridges and their foamy, moisturizing shave gel, starting at just 15 bucks. 10 if you use my discount code. Or check out Harry's limited edition Father's Day set with the storm gray handle, a chrome razor stand, the foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover in a gift box with free custom engraving and a card if you'd like. And save $5 off any set if you enter my code R-E-L-M at harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And remember to enter the code R-E-L-M at checkout. It helps this free newscast, and it helps you figure out Father's Day. That's harrys.com with the checkout code R-E-L-M. And happy Father's Day to my dad and yours. Your money is trying to kill you. A new microbiology study shows that the exchange of what we call paper money is a good way to spread dangerous pathogens, including cholera and E. coli. The study found that money made from a blend of paper and linen is very good at absorbing bacteria and that it gives the bacteria a very good place to grow and multiply and very good at harboring bacteria that's resistant to antibiotics. The study found that money is more risky than the hands of a stranger or the air in a transit station. Researchers are advising the people who print money 
and advising banks to be more hygiene conscious until the arrival of a cashless society. In the meantime, plastic-based banknotes like the UK's five-pound note carry fewer microbes than money printed on linen or paper. The jury has now been chosen for the upcoming Bill Cosby sexual assault trial. Only two of the 12 jurors are black. Cosby is on trial for the assault of Andrea Constand at the home he shares with his wife near Philadelphia. The jury was chosen in Pittsburgh, however, in an attempt to find an unbiased jury. That wasn't easy. The public has already heard similar accusations against Cosby from more than 50 other women. Twelve jurors and six alternates from the Pittsburgh area will be temporarily moved to suburban Philadelphia and sequestered there for a trial that's set to begin a week from Monday. Despite the many other accusers, the prosecution will only call one other besides Constand, but they say it will show that Cosby had a pattern of sexual misconduct with women. Cosby, who does not intend to testify, is facing 10 years in prison if convicted. The prosecution will also introduce a once-sealed deposition in which Cosby seems to admit to sexual misconduct. Four young neo-Nazis, 18 to 22 years old, shared an apartment in Tampa, Florida, and one of them converted to Islam. What could possibly go wrong? Hilarity did not ensue. Double murder did. While one of the four was away, the one who converted to Islam by his own confession killed the other two. The 18-year-old confessed killer turned himself in to police. He told police he did it because the roommates had disrespected his newfound Muslim faith and because they were planning a major domestic terror attack. So police then went to the apartment. They found no evidence of a major attack. But they found that fourth roommate, the one who'd been away in Key West, had returned, discovered the bodies, and was in tears. And then a search of that fourth roommate's home turned up a garage full of bomb-making materials and on his dresser, a framed photo of Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. And the fourth roommate admitted to police he and the other roommates had been planning to use the explosives for domestic terror. The 18-year-old who says he killed two of his roommates is in a local jail. The McVeigh worshiper with the explosives is in a federal detention center in Miami, which means he won't be reporting for usual for his duties with the Florida National Guard. Passings and Passages the world champion of motorcycle Grand Prix, Nicky Hayden, died Monday, five days after being hit by a car while he was training on a bicycle. Roger Moore, the actor who played 007 the longest, died Tuesday at age 89. Moore was the second Bond after Sean Connery, but played the British spy in seven movies, from Live and Let Die in 1973 to A View to a Kill in 85. Before that, he played a dashing Robin Hood-type thief in TV's The Saint. He was also a British knight and did a lot of work for the United Nations children's charity, UNICEF. And although details are sketchy, we know that actress Lisa Spoonauer died Saturday at age 44. She played Caitlin in Kevin Smith's first movie, Clerks. This week, Smith tweeted, You changed my life, Lisa. And may the 40 be with you. The movie Star Wars first appeared in theaters... 40 years ago today. Guardians of the Galaxy was not the top movie last week. After two weeks at the top, it was edged out by newcomer Alien Covenant. Nothing else even came close since Guardians and Alien captured 35 and $36 million each last weekend. For theaters and showtimes, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. The best hamburgers I've ever had are sold at a locally owned tavern about five minutes from my house. Their burgers are even better than my second favorite, Five Guys. And that's saying something, because when it comes to hamburger chains, Five Guys has just beaten In-N-Out Burgers for the first time ever, becoming number one for the first time in this year's Harris Poll on the subject. It's a battle between two coasts. Five Guys is headquartered in Lorton, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. In-N-Out is based in Irvine, California, just south of L.A. Shake Shack has the third best burgers in the Harris Poll. Wendy's ranked fourth. Culver's is fifth. Whataburger is sixth. McDonald's is in seventh place. It was only recently on this report that I mentioned that karma comes slowly sometimes, and sometimes it's instant. 
Dateline Zimbabwe, where hunters meet up with a dwindling population of what they call big game. A hunter from neighboring South Africa was hunting near a national park where Cecil the Lion was shot to death by an American hunter two summers ago. This hunter, a specialist in killing lions and leopards, was leading a whole group of hunters when suddenly he found himself in the middle of a breeding herd of elephants with their calves. One mama elephant picked up this 51-year-old hunter with her trunk, and then one of the other hunters shot her. She dropped the hunter she had been holding in the air and then fell on top of him, killing him instantly. The hunter had been friends with another hunter whose remains were found inside a crocodile last month. Sometimes the animals win. Karma always does. If you're driving on a highway and your hood pops open, obscuring your view of the road ahead of you, do you A, make sure traffic is clear and slowly pull off the road, or B, keep driving at high speed, peering through that narrow gap between the edge of the hood and your dashboard? From the home office in Florida comes the YouTube video of an SUV driver whose hood was up as he zipped along Highway 50 near the very center of the Sunshine State. The narrow-visioned driver made it another mile before police pulled him over, tied down the busted hood for him, and gave him a ticket for driving blind and stupid. And finally, Lisa Ormont of Decatur, Georgia, heard a buzzing coming from the side of her house, and she decided some bees had gotten in. She had no idea. She called her beekeeper friend and asked him to check it out. He had no idea. The job was bigger than he'd expected, so together they called in a bee removal specialist. Using a heat-sensing camera, the specialist located the hive. It was actually in her ceiling. So he started drilling, only to discover that the hive was about six feet long and that it must have taken two years to build. It was also home to about 120,000 bees. Several hundred of them crawled or flew out of the hole in the ceiling the bee expert had made. The removal expert says it's one of the two biggest hives he's ever seen. Despite that, he only got stung 10 or 15 times. Not bad, I guess, for 120,000 bees. The expert used a special vacuum to suck the bees into big canisters that allowed him to safely relocate them. The bee bust also netted honey, about 60 pounds of it. Lisa's roommate is unhappy about all of this, especially about not getting any of the honey. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.